This episode of the React Podcast is brought to you by reacttraining.com. In-person, hands-on training for development teams from React community leaders and experts. Visit reacttraining.com to learn more. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another exciting episode of the React Podcast. I am your host, Michael Jackson. I have my co-host with me here, Mr. Michael Chan. Hello. And we have a very special guest with us today, Mr. Curtis Kempel. Welcome to the show, Curtis. Hello, hello. Kurt is joining us from Virginia Beach from his new digs. He just just bought a home. What was it, like last week, Kurt? Yeah, yeah, signed at the end of last week. Dude, congratulations. That's huge. Yeah, it is. It's huge. Thank you so much. Uh, it was definitely a rough five months and an even rougher after the signing, but yeah, oh my powering gosh. through and love it. Yeah. Oh my gosh, dude. I wait. So I bought a house like uh, just, just last year, actually. And uh, the whole thing, <laughs> the whole thing was so stressful for me. I felt like curling up into a ball sometimes and just like crying. In fact, my wife, who is like much more like, I would say stable than I am. <laughs> just like, just like mentally, she's like a rock. And she was like, you know what? I got this. I'm going to handle this. So she did, she did the whole thing for me basically. And I was like, thank you so much. Thank you. Dude, it, um, it yeah, is that's, stressful. That's amazing. The whole like loan process. I, um, we refinanced our house one year and there was some other stuff going on in my life too. But, um, when I, uh, when we refinanced, I got shingles. Like we finished the refinancing process and it's like, I don't know, supposedly it's like, uh, what is it? Chicken pox, but like their revenge and you can get it by getting too stressed out and it comes back mm. out, out in your system. It was, it was the most pain I've ever been in all related to stress of freaking refinancing a house. It was stupid. Yeah. So, that's horrible. <laughs> yeah. But that about sums it up. Right. That's, you know. <laughs> totally. <laughs> well, well, congratulations on making it through the gauntlet, man. That's huge. Yeah. I, I saw a tw- I saw a tweet from you where you were like, uh, it was something like five years ago. I could have never imagined that like any of this would have actually happened. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you still feel like uh, still feel like grateful to be kind of where you are and everything. I thought that was that was really cool. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, I grew up really uh, really poor. Um, you know, struggled through most of my young adult life, uh, struggled with, uh, drug addiction, a lot of other problems. And just like at that point, depression, uh, I didn't see like a future for myself. It was more hmm. of like a day to day, uh, never really thought about a family or, or owning a home or, you know, any of those type of, uh, things that I guess you would call adulting, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, but, uh, yeah. And, you know, here I am the, the exact polar opposite of, of where I used to be. Uh, and this was just like a monumental success of mine. It was one of the goals that I set for myself once I, I flipped around was, uh, you know, start a family and be able to provide, uh, for that family. So yeah, it's, it's very, uh, interesting and surreal still doesn't feel real at times. Man, that's amazing. Could could you tell us a little bit more about that? Like, what is so? So I imagine that um, th- that kind of all of your you know program experience has has changed some of that for you. But could could you elaborate on kind of th- your journey over the last handful of years and how that transition happened? Yeah. So I mean, it's really you know the transition happened about like seven to eight years ago, really. Um, so yeah, I got into a lot of trouble when I was about 22 years old. I wrote a blog post about this as well on Medium. 
Um, but yeah, so I actually uh, was incarcerated and I was incarcerated for about six years. Uh, and then uh, I was released in 2010, January. I'll never forget. I got introduced to programming in prison uh, and wow. uh, it changed and saved my life pretty much. Uh, not to take away from the hard work or the help uh, that I received, uh, definitely received quite a bit of help. But really, I, I feel like uh, without uh, programming, I wouldn't have been able to turn my life around as quickly or as successfully. Thank you for sharing, Kurt. So you, uh, last time I last time I met you in person, we were hanging out. We were having pizza in uh, New York City. You, we were we were at Italy, and you were working at Major League Soccer at, at the time. You were. Uh, you were doing a lot of GraphQL work there, as if I recall. In fact, you uh, you head up the NYC GraphQL meetup. Is that right? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I've just recently handed that off to uh, some other awesome folks because, you know, I'll be in Virginia Beach majority of the time now. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, yeah. So I started up the GraphQL meetup uh, because we adopted GraphQL Major League Soccer. And uh, it was, it, you know, it still is in, in a lot of ways kind of like the Wild West. And so there wasn't a ton of information floating around. And um, I really don't like to work like in isolation or in a bubble. And I always want to check what I'm doing against what other people in the industry are doing. So I actually started the meetup to try and, and convince and get people out uh, in, in the New York area talking about GraphQL and how they're using it or plan to use it. That's perfect. So you, so you use the meetup as kind of like a sounding board. Let's share some ideas. Uh, who, who else did you find in the local community that was, uh, that was using it in, uh, in New York City? I'm sure Jared Palmer was there. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So Jared Palmer, uh, New York Times, uh, Artsy, uh, just, I mean, the list goes on. There's a ton of companies uh, utilizing GraphQL or like on the verge uh, of utilizing GraphQL. Uh, Priceline is another huge one. They're really involved uh, in the meetup there. Uh, of course, Major League Soccer. Uh, yeah, but they're, you know, uh, the list goes on. It's honestly hard to name them because there's so many. Mm hmm. And so were you building out like an API or something at, uh, at MLS in, in this GraphQL? Is, is, that what, uh, is that what you were using it for? Yeah, yeah. So I was actually hired as the tech lead of the UI team and uh, Major League Soccer started internalizing their tech. Everything was pretty much uh, outsourced prior to my hire. Got it. Uh, and we also hired um, in-house designers. And as part of that, they wanted to essentially build a design system, revamp the UI. And when I got the first project uh, for our new scores and schedule page, uh, I noticed like there was a lot of cohesion, uh, uh, as in like the, the data on the front end was displayed like it all came from the same place, but it was actually coming from like four or five different APIs. Got it. Uh, and I was like, okay, so this seems like the right time for uh, GraphQL. Let's take a look. Uh, spun up a you know a little spike, put it in front of one of our existing REST APIs, uh, and everybody loved it. So once I got the buy-in, yeah, then we we built a API gateway. Uh, that it, all of our like downstream or now all of their downstream uh, UIs use. Sounds like the perfect uh, use case for GraphQL. I see a lot of people doing that type of thing, sort of piecing together multiple different APIs, multiple different endpoints uh, into one GraphQL uh, server. 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, it, it's a great use case. The way I like to think of it is that um, instead instead of having to adhere to like the schemas, like oftentimes when you build a REST API, in ways you're still very adhered to the underlying schema of your data, mm-hmm. uh, even how you structure those relationships. And with GraphQL, because you get to define literally any any schema structure that you want, uh, yeah, it's a really pleasing experience because it allows uh, you to cleanly break away from the back end and say, this is the front end's concern, uh, and here's the schema that we need to, in order to move quickly. So in terms of pitching this to your company, um, what did you find the most valuable uh, kind of like aspects in terms of, like it sounds like obviously just hitting, hitting one endpoint for all of that data and having that kind of make the decisions about where to fetch the data from was huge. Um, but for someone who is looking to uh, kind of get their company transitioned to GraphQL. Um, what would you recommend to that person uh, trying to implement it or get it started or kind of get it into their app for the first time? Yeah, sure. Uh, that's a great question. Uh, and it's, I'm glad you asked. Uh, please stop me if I derail too long. But this is a really uh, good topic that I love to talk about. And it doesn't just apply to GraphQL, but it's just like how to get buy-in in general. So as a tech lead, this was my sole job was to evaluate uh, existing and upcoming UIs uh, or clients and and kind of envision what a revamped uh, tech stack looks like, get the buy-in for that, and then build a team around Mm. it. So I did that with the first project, which was Scores and Schedule. I did it with uh, Amazon Fire TV app. Uh, I did it with that GraphQL API, and then again with the React Native app uh, for mobile. So I had to do this multiple times. So I started reading, like at first I was having a lot of difficulty. Uh, I was at a company that's used to dealing with contractors uh, and like set deadlines and not really internal teams like spiking, prototyping, building, presenting, and getting buy-in. So it was a very interesting dynamic. So I wanted to make sure that I was very careful about how I approach this. Uh, And so the the few things that I recommend is, first off, know your stakeholders. So there's going to be multiple different groups or people involved Uh, And you have to know what each one of them, like what their investments are in in the project. Like what is the benefit that they'll get? Because what design cares about, uh, you know, product might not care about. And what product cares about, engineers might not care about. So the first thing is like knowing who's invested and why uh, so that you can figure out what it is about your solution that tailors to them. Or just make sure that like your solution actually does tailor to everyone involved. Mm Uh, you know, and so then when it comes to actually getting the buy-in, I'm a firm believer in like building the outcome, like let, let people like words are very hard, uh, at times for people to like grasp or get excited about. But I feel like when you hand them something tangible, uh, it becomes a lot easier to show like what the benefits are because they get to play with it. They get to experience it. So for GraphQL, uh, for the front end, I was able to just show how easy it was to query for data uh, and pull that in. I did that building like a little React example, talking to one of our, our APIs through GraphQL. Uh, and then for the back end engineers, I showed them how uh, easy it was to co-locate data as far as like resolvers. Once I got them understanding resolvers, it was pretty easy to get the buy-in. Uh, and then uh, for products, I spun up uh, Graphical. So our product team loved to have like these uh, API browsers, which were entire apps that yeah. people would build. Developers would build like a two-person team over two months building this browser so you can explore an API. Uh, and with Graphical, you get that for free, right? Yeah. So, so it was just 
targeting the specifics that they would want. And so then the question becomes not like, well, what is this or what problem is that? Generally, it's like, oh, like how quick can we start using this? Mm. So I, I've found great success with just trying to build like a micro example. Now, you, you've actually written uh... – I think that's so important, by the way, to to understand as an as an engineer, which probably the majority of people listening to this podcast are, are in engineering, uh, how to get how to really get buy in and how to understand your stakeholders and 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 speak to their needs and get them excited, get them on board uh, whenever you're undertaking a project like this. So many times, uh, you know, the engineering dis- engineering decides, well, we need a rewrite or we need a whatever. And they don't really explain it that well to the rest of the company. And so then the rest of the, co- there creates a lot of friction there, right? Because, yes. uh, and it creates a lack of trust. Well, why is engineering taking so long uh, doing this thing? Yeah, I'm always, I'm always interested in, and that's why I asked, I'm always fascinated. Uh, you know, when you hear those success stories, um, you know, part of it is obviously the tech. Like if, it, if, if the tech's right, that makes it easier. Um, but so much of it is, as you said, um, being an advocate for change in general, um, that you understand the problems of the other people on your team and the, the, the needs of the stakeholders. Um, and it's just really interesting to hear you, uh, uh, kind of echo that as, as we've heard from a lot of people who are successful in making change or polling for change, um, that you really have to be familiar with the needs and, and communicate in terms of what other people need. Yeah, absolutely. I always like to say, you know, you just have to learn how to speak everyone's language. Mm. Uh, you know, and I, I believe cross-functional teams are, are a really important part of that. I try and spend a lot of time working closely with product, with designers, with QA, with with any department that touches engineering, essentially. Um, you know, because uh, you can't understand their problems if you don't understand their workflows and you can't understand their workflows if you're not like spending time with them literally while they're working you know because a lot of times that stuff is undocumented uh and so you know uh, if if you're not familiar with what's going on around your department i you know it's hard to make your department successful totally so uh so you've actually written uh, quite a bit about your experience with GraphQL. You had a, a post on the Apollo blog. Um, let's see, this is uh, about a year ago, actually. You had a yeah. post on the Apollo blog. Five things they don't want you to know about <laughs> React Apollo. You're talking about pagination. You're talking about, uh, you know, con- conditional data fetching, batching of requests. So you, you learned quite a bit about... Um, you know, about, I guess, the specifics of Apollo's implementation of GraphQL uh, along the way. If, if I recall, when we were having dinner together in New York, you were talking about kind of an interesting, not really, uh, I, guess, I guess you could call it a bug, but it was kind of something that you ran into on a pretty high traffic day uh, one day at Major League Soccer. Could you tell us, uh, tell us that story? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So uh, this is actually a little more um, on the back end, but still an interesting story nonetheless. Um, But yeah, after building out that uh, API gateway, um, I I just learned a lot of neat little patterns and and, like it just really clicked for me, the expressiveness uh, of like uh, Apollo or other other really GraphQL clients and how they let you uh, treat the data management almost essentially as like part of the UI in a way, which is weird and, and some people dislike, but I kind of like. Um, but not to digress too much, yes, so to jump on this, uh, um, you know, any any technology is new and uh, 
you know, that is new and that you don't have a lot of experience and you have to uh, know that uh, there could be potential issues. Right. And so like number one, having an environment where failure is okay and like not um, looked down on is important. Uh, And then the second thing is just uh, being able to quickly work through issues. So I don't know if you're familiar with Aaron Hammer. Um, yeah, but, absolutely. For, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, you know, um, responsible for getting Walmart uh, onto node. Uh, and as an early adopter, you know, he said something that resonated with me, you know, you, you know, if you want to like move faster and stuff, you can do that. And this is like paraphrasing. It's not an exact quote. Um, but like to do that, you have to be on the bleeding edge. But if you're on the bleeding edge, you have to understand that like you may hit issues. Uh, and you have to either like work through them or like be willing to support the people who can work through them. Uh, and yeah, I successfully hit one of those issues. Uh, so Major League Soccer has uh, uh, this big event, what they call a tentpole event, uh, which is Decision Day. And on Decision Day, it's actually two days, oddly enough, not uh, not just one. But on the first Sunday, half the teams play each other at one time and then half the teams in the league, other half play each other like right after. So say like three to five and then five to seven p.m. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is our second largest traffic day. The following Sunday is the, the full decision day where all teams play each other at once. So this is the most stressful time on the systems at Major League Soccer mm-hmm. uh, because literally all teams are there. All the fans are in, like everybody is hitting the system at the same time. Mm-hmm. All the uh, uh, stats events are coming through. Uh, you know, so it's just a lot, a lot of traffic. So on the first Sunday, uh, and we've done some load testing against GraphQL, uh, quite, a, quite a decent amount, but, you know, this is like heavy traffic. Uh, so yeah, so long story short, the first Sunday, uh, everything seems fine. And then out of nowhere, the CPUs for our servers that are running GraphQL just start spiking and dropping, spiking and dropping. And then eventually they, they just start spiking so much, uh, once traffic got enough that they couldn't recover. Right. So one would go up and spike and then crash. So we're just like in complete, uh, disaster mode at this point you know oh, pager yeah. duty goes off uh you know uh the new uh scores and schedule page that uh is being powered by this is unavailable so it is needless to say not a good day mm-hmm. uh, so what happened was uh it was actually a misunderstanding about a tool called data loader uh which is pretty widely used with graphql mm-hmm. uh and so it's, like i said you know it's not quite a bug it's more of a misunderstanding so what Data Loader does under the hood is it actually uh, like caches the promises that you use that represent like fetching certain data, right? So like you choose what actually happens under the hood, but for our case, it was fetching data. So let's say, uh, you know, 10 requests come in for the same match. Because they go through Data Loader, it's just one promise is created while it fetches the data for that match. And then when it resolves, all of those uh you know, uh, callbacks would be fired, right? So if there's 10 requests, 10 callbacks are fired Mm -hmm. and they all process the data. Mm -hmm. So what I didn't realize is that that is what was happening. It was caching the promise and not the data response. I thought it was like a quick cache where it just cached the data response and returned Mm -hmm. that so it wouldn't have to hit the system. Mm -hmm. So what happened was because we had such a high traffic volume, a promise would come in and there'd be like, you know, a hundred or a thousand or more requests waiting on it to resolve. And then it would resolve and then have to call all those callbacks. Uh, And because that part was serial, so it would just take forever. Uh, And so we would hit those CPU spikes 
so we ended up having to like implement our own internal caching that happened behind data loader. So then it went like data loader to the cache and then to the remote request. Mm -hmm. uh, but I had to bring down uh, the entire API, put up our old system that we still had running uh, just in case of emergencies like this. And then I had one week to figure that out, get a caching layer implemented and documented before the actual decision day. Uh, so that was a very, very stressful week, very long hours. So, so how did you, how did you figure that out, man? I mean, how did you, know, yeah. how did you figure out that that was the problem? Did you? Uh, yeah. So the, the first thing we did was at first we couldn't even tell that the CPU uh, was spiking because it's GraphQL. Uh, and so, I mean, you can use engine uh, if you want to like Apollo engine, to, if you want to uh, get tracing data about your resolvers, uh -huh. but there was nothing really like new relic that we were using that could just tell us about the server. So all we knew was like our, our, our like lower level data, like mm -hmm. in AWS or Sysdig or, you know, uh, it's basically saying, Hey, these servers, these CPUs running these containers are messing up. Yeah. Uh, so that was it. Right. So that's why we had to, we had no idea at first. So that's why we, we took down the API and put up the old system uh, mm -hmm. back in place. And then step one was actually use node source. Uh, I got the, I'd been trying to get major league soccer to, uh, uh, get a license with node source for quite a while. And then this was finally like, I, I need this to see what's happening to, mm -hmm. uh, the CPU. Mm -hmm. And so once I had node source in, it was very easy. I spun it back up, hit it with load tests, mm. way up the traffic in the load test. So I was spinning up large servers in AWS mm. and then just like bombing, uh, the API. And so once I was doing that, I was able to recreate those spikes, but now I had node source so I could do like complete introspection with, with D-Trace, right? So I just click on it and then it would, you know, spin it out for me and show me, uh, you know, through which methods the holdups were in. And so then I would see that it was always after data loader. Um, that's where we would get the crazy spikes. So then that made me just dig into data loader source. And I'm like, wait a minute, this is like not caching anything at all. Mm -hmm. except the promises. Mm -hmm. So that means like as soon as it resolves, it just sends another promise. That's another thing. It was throttling our backends as well, mm. um, like the REST APIs. So yeah. all that stuff uh, combined together was just like catastrophic. It's it's more like a data loader is more like a mutex yeah. inst instead of an actual cache, right? It's yeah. just like all requests that are coming to me, uh, I'm only going to let one through at a time. And then I'm going to resolve them, but I'm not actually going to keep the data around. Exactly. Exactly. And so that was, that was, uh, cause it was always explained to me as a cache. And so mm -hmm. again, another reason you know, for prompting me to start GraphQL NYC, uh, you know, misinformation, not a ton of information around, uh, the readme didn't really explain it. It actually kind of displayed like the language speaks like it's a cache. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, there is like a short video, so that's what I get for not reading the manual. Um, yeah. But yeah. Well, I've looked through the data loader source because I, I think I initially thought it was a cache as well. Um, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like that sounds like a lot of work, you know? And I looked through the data loader source and I, and I obviously didn't didn't read it as, uh, as closely as you did. But it um, it's just a single file. Yeah. If I remember, it's just like, it one. Is. yeah, it's just like one file. And I was like, oh, that's, these guys must be really smart or 
or this doesn't really do that much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I thought it was because uh, I did a first pass and I really just thought it was an in-memory weak map, which which is what it is. But it's mm-hmm. actually just storing the promise, mm-hmm. not the result of the promise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I, and, yeah. Well, I was just going to say, I, I think I could probably use some of that node source magic on uh, on unpackage. Yeah. So yeah, quick, quick plug for node source. Uh, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's a really fantastic tool, uh, that immediate introspection is great. Uh, you can set, um, like limits, uh, so like CPU over 60% or memory over 60% or, you know, different things. Uh, yeah. And then it will just record the dump for you. Like just dumps, you know, um, all the information from node, and stores it for you. So you can go back and look at it anytime, or you can just click one and open it in real time and just get complete introspection, you know, from all the way from node core through user land code. So it's pretty nice. That sounds lovely. I, I, it, I right it is now, lovely. I have, I have these, um, you know, I have, I, so I'm moving, I'm currently working on moving unpackage over from, uh, from Heroku over to Google cloud, just so I can like get some more details. And, and they have this thing yeah. called, called stack driver, um, which is, which is up to ne- up to this point is, uh, you know, I've, I've only used it just a little bit, but it's been pretty cool because it's, it's, you know, instead of just having a raw log file, it's actually like parsing the logs and letting me search the logs and everything, which is really nice. That's cool. Um, but, uh, but I think the next step for me really is, you know, getting in and, and, and watching that, that, uh, you know, like what you're talking about, like watching a request come in, seeing the whole stack, all the all the different functions that are called, seeing where I'm where I'm taking my time, um, because there are a couple of errors that I'm I'm kind of looking at, and I'm like, I'm not exactly sure where that comes from. And and yeah. at the at, when you're at scale, it's <laughs> it's hard to <laughs> it's hard to know unless you get good tools. So I think I'm going to talk to those guys. That's a that's a good good plug. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I would definitely recommend it. And, you know, you hit the nail on the head without like the proper tooling in place uh, at scale. It's about impossible to figure out what's going on. Yeah. Well, we've talked a ton up to this point about your experience at Major League Soccer, about uh, all of your experience with GraphQL and stuff. But you recently just made a switch. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, you you made a big switch, which uh, which I think is really exciting. Which I definitely want to talk about. You joined uh, Gatsby Inc., which I think uh, was announced just a couple of weeks ago that that y'all raised like I think it was, I think the round was like three million dollars, three plus. Yeah, it was, um, yeah, it was over three. Yeah, yeah, which is awesome. So that gives you quite a bit of runway to make. Uh, obviously, Gatsby. If if uh, in case listeners haven't heard of it before, they've probably been living under a rock. Gatsby is. The uh, static site generator for React, it's, uh, it's been used on quite a few uh, high-profile React projects. Uh, the, the one that I'm most familiar with is, I, I think, the new reactjs.org project that launched mm-hmm. uh, about a year ago now was done with Gatsby. Um, but I'm sure it's been used on, on much bigger sites than that that I'm, that I'm probably not familiar with. Anyway, uh, Kurt has jo- is part of the founding team. Part of the uh, part of the, I think there are six people there at Gatsby right now. So I think uh, technically right now we are eight. Two, okay, four, it might be seven. Um, and and I, you I had think a, we're like on the border of eight. You, you had a kickoff meeting in uh, in Europe somewhere, right? You were yeah, you in Berlin. Yeah, you wow. all went to Berlin and partied for a week. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
if by party you mean uh, code furiously and prepare for a release and then basically pass out shortly after. <laughs> exactly how it went. Well, that, that's awesome. Tell, tell us a little bit about, uh, first of all, a little bit about your, uh, you, you know, your experience at the, at the, at the launch and then, uh, and then a little bit about uh, Gatsby itself. So, so, uh, what was that, what was that kind of like? You, you guys were just kind of, uh, just kind of syncing up. You just raised a round, you're getting ready to kind of push forward and, and make a big push on Gatsby. Um, you know, Kyle was there, I'm sure he's the, 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 the CEO. Kyle, by the way, is a, a friend of mine from, uh, from my BYU days. He and I have, have the same alma mater. Yeah. And, uh, and so, so you guys were all there, you're programming, you're, you're coding. What was that like? Oh, it was great. So uh, Gatsby is a remote company, uh, mm-hmm. but we, we do a gathering uh, once a quarter. Uh, mm-hmm. And so we try and like target, uh, you know, larger things that we need to focus on and, and mm-hmm. save for that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, of course, company launch is a perfect fit for that. Um, yeah. And so because we're also remote, uh, we have people in Europe and the United States. So jumping back and forth is nice. So like the last one was in San Francisco, mm-hmm. then this one was in Berlin. So next one will most likely be in the U.S. or somewhere on, um, uh, you know, uh, like South or, or North America, somewhere mm-hmm. in that area. That's awesome. Um, yeah, but sorry. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's awesome. I love it. Uh, I love being remote, which is what enabled me to purchase a home and move uh, to Virginia Beach. <laughs> Uh, I mean, that was kind of already in the works for like some other reasons, which is the main driver for me leaving MLS. They uh, currently don't support full remote. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So that's what really like put me on the market. And then uh, I was on the market and Kyle reached out to me uh, and Sam, who's the other co-founder. And uh, they were like, hey, we just saw that you're on the market, which is really odd because we were just talking about you and we're saying how <laughs> awesome it would be if you could join Gatsby, but you're at MLS. Oh, uh, no way. Yeah, yeah. And so a little uh, backstory to that is uh, I was actually investigating Gatsby at Major League Soccer for the MLSsoccer.com property, which is like the main content site for MLS. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, so there were some problems to figure out to solve there because that's like a million plus page site uh, mm-hmm. when you roll back like all of the content back to 1996. So, uh, yeah, so there were like some problems there. So you know, dealing with Gatsby and a site at that size. So I was talking already very closely with Kyle um, about like how we could make that happen. And so that's how that's how we actually met, and that's how all that started. Um, yeah. So to jump back in, yeah. So the, the week in Berlin was amazing. We got to meet. Uh, so uh, Contentful. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but uh, headless CMS company. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and uh, it's very common to pair Gatsby with Contentful. They they work really well together. Uh, and so we see a lot of that. So anyway, they're they're located in Berlin. So we got to meet up with them. Uh, we got to meet up with the Prisma team, uh, who I don't know if you're familiar with them, but yep. they do a really nice work uh, in the GraphQL tooling community as well. Yeah, I'm gonna get. I'm gonna get. Uh, oh gosh, what's the founder's name? Uh, but anyway, I'm gonna get Prisma on the show before too yeah. long. I've I've been talking to them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely should. They uh, really stand up, smart people. Uh, I love them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. So we met with them and then we just got a WeWork, you know, and it was just the eight of us uh, in a room uh, spending, you know, some time uh, working on uh, the www site, um, GatsbyJS.com. 
Uh, and then doing some other stuff. So like every three months, we like to retro the last three months and then goal plan for the next three months. So, you know, just kind of like taking care of all that stuff that keeps us on track and a healthy remote team. So as someone from the outside, uh, someone who uses Gatsby um, and is excited to see kind of all this development around it, um, what are some of the things that um, that are on the horizon for you that you um, see as um, things that need to be I guess, fixed, uh, created for the first time, uh, new features. What are some things that you're excited about um, for Gatsby and the Gatsby community at large? Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's a great question. So the, the one thing that I'm most excited about is just the amount of help that we'll now be able to get on the open source project itself. A large uh, amount of uh, money and time is going into improving the open source project, uh, which is awesome. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, like, so is as part of that, there's a few things. We want to get uh, way better tooling support. Uh, and what I mean by that is uh, much like Create React App, like having ESLint, uh, you know, for like error checking, not really stylistic stuff, but ESLint uh, integration, also uh, linting your GraphQL schema so that if you try to query for things that don't exist, you can get warnings. Uh, but then also exposing that tooling, that schema, ESLint config, Babel config, making it super easy to tie in things like Storybook uh, or use like your own ESLint um, uh, configuration, like inline in your editor. So you're getting inline uh, warnings instead of having to wait for the terminal or, or view it in the web page, like with a Create React app. Mm-hmm. So that that's one big thing for me. It's just like improving the already great developer experience, but trying to really like push it to the very top. Um, yeah. And I think like a big part of that is exposing all the configuration. Right now, it's hard to uh, run other things inside of Gatsby. It can get kind of tricky. You know, like setting up good Jest configuration with Gatsby is like a pain because they like fight over Babel RC. So that's really interesting. I I feel like you see this conversation come up a lot. The idea of a a project going from kind of opinionated, uh, like uh, air quotes, like zero config, um, and then kind of developing. Uh, and we saw this a little bit with um, uh, was it six to five kind of turning into Babel yeah. and kind of its transition from Babel five to Babel six and Babel seven and it kind of opening up and exposing a lot more of its um, its internals to, to 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 the developer. Um, do you feel yeah. like that's a like a pretty good way to get a, a strong start with your open source project? So if someone has kind of a pet open source project and they kind of want to hit like a Gatsby or Babel level of success, like would you recommend the same path to them? So, yeah, I mean, it, it's a really tough uh, thing to answer. And I think it, it mostly depends, like, I guess no difference from a business, but like who's the target audience of your tool? So in the case of Gatsby uh, or something like Babel, it's interesting because they range from very experienced users to very uh, inexperienced users, right? Mm-hmm. Like as someone who's just starting with development, um, I could start out trying to use Gatsby to build sites because it's pretty quick and easy. Yeah. And so for those people, you want zero config. They don't, you know, they don't want to have to learn the ins and outs of Webpack before they can use your tool. So I like to think of what it, like what I've been calling sensible defaults. Mm-hmm. So basically, it's zero config if you want it, but it's just sensible defaults that are overridable. Mm-hmm. So like what we're going to do is if you have a local ESLint RC, we'll just disable ours, right? Mm. You're saying, hey, I'm in charge of the ESLint for this project. Uh, you know, I know what I want and what I don't want set. So we're not going to interfere. We'll just get out of your way. Mm. Get out of your hair. 
the second way for more advanced users is because Gatsby has a plugin architecture, you can tie into the Webpack config. Um, and so, <clears throat> you know, so advanced users can alter it. Uh, instead of disabling it. Uh, and then beginner users, people who are just running, you know, uh, Gatsby init, right, or creating a, or Gatsby new, creating a new project, you know, but have no development experience. Uh, we, we see that a lot. We see a lot of people using Gatsby who have never, who don't know what Node is. Mm. Uh, and so, yeah, so, so in that sense, yeah, I think it's there. I think it's a combination of two things. Making sure your defaults are sensible, but overridable. And then two, uh, if you want to, uh, like, if you have a project of that size, notice how Babel and Gatsby both have a plugin architecture. Mm. And as much as I hate that, it's like without that, you end up in this world where you're just kind of like adding all these one-offs to solve people's problems. Mm. Yes. Uh, yes. Or, or you're over-configurating. Like, like you have this really complicated config, like back in the world of like jQuery plugins that mm -hmm. would have like a literal page of options. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's tough. But I definitely say, yeah, you have to make things overridable, especially if you're in the tooling world, because everybody's tooling and, and infrastructure and processes and workflows are different. Yeah. Show me two a, teams yeah, that have the same workflow. I'll, mm -hmm. I'll lose it. <laughs> yeah. There was a, there was a tool for um, Create React app that was like, uh, that would basically just like open it up and expose its webpack config. Do either of you know what that's called? It was something like it's like re yeah, uh, isn't that cu React custom scripts? So there's React scripts and then like React custom scripts or something. Oh, like that, is there? Yeah, that's not the one I was thinking of, but but uh, yeah, okay. it's it's this, but it's the same kind of idea, right? It was like a um, yeah, but yeah, it was it was uh, I I think the the you know the the goal of zero config is an admirable goal but it's so so hard <laughs> to actually get there it's yeah. uh like especially like you said especially when you're building tooling you know it's everybody's got slightly different needs and they need to plug in and tweak this little piece so but at the same time a, a plug-in architecture like a good plug-in architecture is also very tricky to build like so I, hard I, I haven't actually seen uh, many examples that I really, really like. We we were saved from doing that in React Router when we decided that, you know, because we were starting to, like, develop a plugin architecture for React Router, and we were like, wait a minute, React, React already lets us, because these are just components, right? So, so what if our whole router was just components? Yeah. And then, uh, and then anybody who wants to quote unquote plug in to the router can just wrap our components with their own components and then, and then they can do whatever custom stuff they want, right? So if they're doing code splitting or whatever. And so that was, I think the thing that saved us is we, instead of building a plugin architecture, we were a React library. So we just built React components and said, components are your that's your, that's our plugin architecture. That's our, that's yeah. the, that's the common language that we all speak, right? Components um, are my plugin architecture. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. But, uh, but obviously when you're, you know, you're, you're building a tool basically that runs on, on node, like a Webpack or Gatsby, what you're doing, uh, you, you can't just, can't just do that. I would, 
I mean, I assume there's a lot more constraints that you guys are working with that we didn't have. So yeah, there's quite a few constraints, and the weirdest part is it's actually honestly a three part process. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have like the the node part, which is the initial part that's going to pull in the data, do the data transforms, and all that, and you can tie mm-hmm. into that. Then you have the server side rendering part, which is what actually renders the HTML or mm-hmm. you know React to HTML mm-hmm. uh, in a, in a node process, right? So that's mm-hmm. the server side rendering. But then you also have the browser hook in because you know once the client loads, it's just a React app. And you might mm-hmm. also want to control things like injecting scripts you need into the head or things like that, right? Like mm-hmm. um, uh, or the body or wherever you, you decide to put them. But yeah, point being that, uh, yes, yeah, there's a lot of different places where you need to tie in. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, it gets it gets tough. And I agree with you there. I haven't yet to really see a plugin system um, that... You know, one one that I really don't dislike is Happy Happy JS. Uh, mm. They have a decent uh, plugin architecture. I really like it, and mm. uh, Gatsby's is nice too. But you, you know, honestly, it could use some improvements, which it's getting mm. a few of in, in V two, mm-hmm. which is coming soon, by the way. Gatsby V two coming very soon. What are some of the things that we can expect uh, in Gatsby V two? Yeah, uh, also a great question, Mike. Did you have something quick before I answer that? Yeah, no, I was just I was just going to say uh one of the thing just a little bit more on the uh on the on the topic that we were talking about. I was just going to say um I think I like I wonder what it would look like to build a static site generator um including all of the configuration and everything just as react components. Like it's Oh, I see. It, yeah. And well it's and it's kind of a weird thought, but but like I was experimenting the other day with building, um, so, so like currently when you're configuring the servers for the cloud, like the current standard is Kubernetes, right? When it's all just yeah. YAML files. And honestly, you look at a YAML file and it's, uh, you know, it, it, you could, you could do the same thing in JSX, right? I mean, YAML is, mm-hmm. is the new XML. JSX is basically just like an XML syntax on top of JavaScript. And, and in that case, you're not, you're not building these components and running them in the browser. You're, um, <coughs> you're really just interpreting the components as if they were XML, as if they were XML configuration, you know? It's just, I don't know. Yeah. It's, just kind of a, it's just kind of a thought that I had, like, what if... What if everything was just JSX? But <laughs> <laughs> well, you can do that, right? Because it's just the DSL, right? Like just like yeah. YAML is, you know, it's yeah. just, uh, you're just describing well, and then, something. So. And then and then plugging into your system is as easy as uh, create a component. Yeah. Right. Which which, yeah. which I think is again like that's the that's the uh, that's the that's the quote unquote plugin architecture that we decided on for React Router. And it's worked pretty well for us so far because we don't, we, we found ourselves like, um, like scenario solving, right? For every yeah. single use case, somebody would come yeah. to us and say, I need to do X. Oh, okay. Well, let's give you a little bit of API. I need to do Y. Okay. Well, let's give you another little piece of API. Yeah. But, uh, but if, if, if the component model really is complete, which uh, which so far I have found that to be the case in my like three plus years of working with React. If the component model really is complete, maybe we could model other kinds of problems with that same, with that same, with those same building blocks. You know. Well, it does definitely seem interesting for a project like Gatsby, where um, 
like it, it would match. There's a lot of cohesion with the uh, kind of JSX as kind of the the main building block of a Gatsby site. Or sorry, like React components is the main uh, building block of a Gatsby site. So to be able to kind of have that, uh, be able to use similar tactics uh, when configuring your app, um, that does sound like kind of an interesting idea. Yeah, it absolutely does sound interesting. Uh, It doesn't even sound too much different than uh, Proton, which is the uh, um, React component based Electron runner. Mm, Yeah, Uh, I saw that thing. Yeah, I saw that thing. Yeah. So, you know, that... Like there definitely is a world um, where you know I think that that makes a lot of sense. Uh, the more things that move to components, I also think is better. You'll get no argument from me if you watch my React Europe talk on universal components. I go into a lot about how get yeah, it improved communication, um, just getting design thinking in components and product thinking in components and QA thinking in components improved our our workflows and processes greatly. Got yeah. us all speaking the same language. Awesome. Well, hey, Kurt, it has been, uh, we should probably wrap this up, but it has been an absolute pleasure having you in the podcast today. Uh, for those of you who don't, who do not know Kurt, uh, he, uh, well, we talked a little bit about the move right now, but Kurt, uh, has, has joined us at a, probably at a time where I would have opted to not be on the podcast because he's moving right now. And so he's (laughs) slept on an air mattress last night and his house is kind of all in disarray, but he joined us on the podcast. So, my most sincere thanks to Kurt uh, for joining us today. Um, I just got one last question for you, Kurt, and this is the same last question that I put to everybody that we have on the show, and that is, uh, what are you excited about right now in the React space? Or maybe a different way to say it is, who is doing awesome stuff, and maybe you don't think they're getting enough attention. You you mentioned Proton. I'm I'm super stoked about uh, Proton. By the way, I want to get them on the show. Any other ideas for uh, people who are doing awesome stuff who aren't getting getting who aren't getting talked about as much as you'd think they should? Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's uh, two projects that I'm watching super closely right now. Uh, the first one is by uh, Vincent Ramir, and it's React Native DOM. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this is a really interesting um, project that uh, is, I, I don't want to say competitor, but in the same space as React Native Web. Mm-hmm. Uh, and essentially, it's uh, a way to use React Native APIs. And this time now, even the underlying React Native code and libraries and uh, applying that to the web and running it. Yeah. So it, it's very interesting that it adopts the two-thread model uh, and does basically all of the processing and web workers uh, and just uses the UI for rendering. Uh, and they've been, uh, he's been able to recreate a ton of the APIs so far. He's been working on this for about a year, but just announced it at React Europe. Uh, and I think it's one to watch closely for anybody who's interested in uh, multiple platform targeting, universal components, uh, anything like that. It's definitely uh, something to keep an eye on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the second one is actually by uh, Devin Abbott, who is working at Airbnb currently, uh, and it's a project called Lona. Uh, and so uh, Lona is really a tool for like defining your design system. So it's like a, a GUI. Uh, I guess you could kind of compare it to like Sketch or uh, maybe like XBuilder or something like combined. Uh, but essentially you design um, your components in the design tool and it exports the code like react code or something like that. Uh, from what I've seen, this one, uh, 
uh, is by far um, what I feel to be the most promising. And having worked with universal components, one of the biggest pain points was getting the components back to the designers, like getting the components we're using into Sketch is a huge pain point. Hmm. Uh, and when you think about it, that's not unidirectional, right? That's like a two-way data flow. Yep. Uh, but using Lona creates a, a unidirectional like component flow, right? Like design designs them, but what they're actually designing is the actual component output. Uh, so it, it's very interesting and promising, uh, and it's on GitHub. Uh, it's under Airbnb slash Lona, L-O-N-A. Yeah. But yeah, I would definitely check it out. Um, it's it's very cool. You know, those, those are really the two things that are most interesting to me right now. Dude, those are both excellent recommendations. You know, um, that Lona project, I hadn't actually heard about that, um, which is why I ask smart people like you to come on the podcast and tell me about stuff that you're interested <laughs> in. Um, but that, that project is what I thought React Sketch app was. There was ah. a there was a project from like a couple of years back, again out of Airbnb called I think it was called React Sketch or Sketch yeah. Re- React, React Sketch App. Yeah, that's the one. And I thought I thought that that is what I thought that it was. You draw stuff in Sketch and you generate the code. Um, but the the actually it was like the inverse. You write the code and yes. then it and then it creates the Sketch files. So this thing, this Lona thing, I think is. Um, is what I was, what I was, what I kind of thought that was, and what I think is, right. what I think is probably the right uh, flow, or at least the the flow that to me sounds sounds kind of interesting. So, um, so thank you for bringing that one up. Oh yeah, no problem. Yeah, it's something that uh, not only am I watching closely, but um, as soon as I get moved and settled, I plan to start diving in and contributing to. Uh, nice. From all my experience with working on universal components, uh, I, I see that as the only possible future that can improve process and workflow mm-hmm. around that. And I mean, it's just having one source of truth created by the people who should be creating it. Uh, and then engineers uh, just get to pick it like a UI library, right? It's like bringing mm-hmm. React Bootstrap or something in uh, mm-hmm. to your project. So mm-hmm. it's pretty nice. Awesome. Well, hey, Kurt Kempel, it is an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast, sir. And uh, congratulations on all the the uh, all the big, you know, you, you, new job, new house, lots of big things happening for you lately. So huge congratulations for, uh, for all the strides you make. And uh, again, thank you for joining us. We will see you again next week on another episode of the React Podcast, so don't miss it. And uh, goodbye for now. 